So that video that we watched in church today, which is a video you can find online if you Google Matthew 1 through 13 on BibleProject.com, it was created by an amazing team. Bible Project is a crowdfunding nonprofit whose mission is to help people experience the Bible as a unified, unified story that leads to Jesus. And you can watch a ton of videos on their website. And I really appreciate the work and have borrowed a lot of uh, much of what we're going to talk about today is the historical perspective from their scholarship, particularly uh, Tim Mackey, who has his PhD in Hebrew Bible and Jewish studies, as well as my own New Testament seminary professor, Janine Brown. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're beginning a new mini-series. Well, I didn't mention it here, but we're beginning a mini-series called Elephants in the Room. It's based on the fourth book in Matthew's Gospel. He splits his book into four little sections, or five rather, which reflects the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Again, it's called Elephants in the Room. Did the Messiah really say that? And the whole idea is that, you know, in Scripture in general, and even from Jesus' mouth, there's some confusing and confounding uh, words that Jesus say, particularly in this section. And a lot of us have a tendency to misquote scripture. Many of us just ignore or dismiss the confusing or hard portions to understand. And there's life there. There's life that God has for us. And so there's an adventure to have as we delve into the historical context. So the mission is to, one, first read them, and then, two, take an adventure into what is happening in the context so that we can contextualize what it means for us today. So the mini-series is called Elephants in the Room. Did the Messiah really say that? It's going to be a series that takes us from Matthew 14 through Matthew 20. And uh, <clears throat> there's a not-so-side story that begins Matthew 14. But before we do that, I had a question that I asked everybody today. What is your favorite trilogy? What's your favorite trilogy? Whether it be movies, books, where else are there trilogies really? I, I don't really know, but... Um, what's your favorite trilogy? And I can give you a hint of what mine is. Here's my hint. Chewbacca. Oh no, they've got Master Chewbacca. You don't get it? How about this? I love you. I know. Hard one this is. <laughs> Uncle Owen. I was going to go to the Tashi station to pick up some power converters. No one? All right, that is the Star Wars trilogy, the OG trilogy. And beside the spinoffs, what does every Star Wars movie start with? A title crawl. Do you know why they're there? The title crawl, the little message you have that floats across the scars and gets smaller and smaller, so you got to make sure you read it. Well, it's there to set the stage, to stitch the narratives, and most importantly, introduce the conflict. Turmoil is engulfed the Galactic Republic. There's unrest in the Galactic Center. War. It's a period of civil war. It's a dark time for the rebellion. Luke has to return to his Tatooine in order to save his friend Han Solo from the clutches of the vile gangster Jabba the Hutt. Luke Skywalker has vanished. The First Order reigns. The dead speak. Conflict. Those are the first lines, first nine lines of the first of the nine movies. The title crawl particularly the, the title sentence provides a brief prologue which introduces the conflict which sets the stage for the ways in which the protagonists will then respond to the conflict, bringing early resolution early on, which foreshadows ultimate resolution in the story. And even though it's a dark time for the rebellion, i.e. Empire Strikes Back, 
Luke Skywalker and his band of rebels will sacrificially hold off the Imperial forces in the Battle of Hoth so that two convoys, plus the Millennium Falcon, it's Falcon, but if you're a Han Solo fan, it's Falcon, can get away safely. It appears that George Lucas borrowed this title crawl from Flash Gordon, who may have indeed have borrowed it from well, the author Matthew. Either way, this is exactly what we see happening and what the backstory is that Matthew opens and offers in the beginning of chapter 14. So here we go. Jesus, peace, episode 14. At the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus oof, and said to his tenants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work with him or in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his, Philip, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, a daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. Because of his oath and the dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Again, if you read Matthew's gospel, the story seems a bit tertiary or besides the point. But understanding this backstory sheds light on the conflict that Matthew and the Holy Spirit wants the listener to understand as they begin this fourth section. And it's a conflict that's always been there. But first things first, do we remember Herod in the story? Well, yes, he was the one who heard of Jesus' birth in the Advent narrative and married all, murdered all those little boys in Bethlehem, ages zero to two. That's Matthew two. Well, this is not that Herod. This is Herod, that was Herod the Great. This is Herod's son. Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, which means one quarter, ruler of one quarter. Um, and he called himself Herod because he desired to be like his father. Now, there's a map here I want to show you. And again, I borrowed a lot of this from Tim Mackey. And uh, it's a bit complex, but it'll give you understanding of the backstory. See, Herod had three surviving sons. He actually killed two of them. Uh, for their ambition, in addition to his wife for an adulterous affair. But he had three surviving sons, Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip. When Herod the Not-So-Great died, there was almost a war between these three sons for their dad's kingdom. And instead, the nation was split into three territories, and the three sons, this is all under Roman rule, so they're, they're just figurehead kings, so to speak, under Roman occupation and even oppression. So the three sons, Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip, functioned like regional governors. And Archelaus ruled the lower section. Philip ruled the northeastern section. Antipas, a.k.a. Herod Antipas, who's in the story, uh, ruled Galilee, as well as the lower section of Priya, which he got by the way of marrying uh, the daughter of king of Nabatea. You see that in the lower section, Princess of Nabatea, which is, this is all modern-day Jordan. That's where Petra is, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is a great trilogy if you don't include the fourth one. Uh, they, they, they're traveling into Petra to grab the rock, or to grab the, the cup of the covenant. While the three sons and their wives are in Rome, paying homage, 
Anyway, I guess what I want to say is Herod Antipas gained land, that lower section of Perea, from uh, the king of Napatea by marrying his daughter, Princess Napatea. Well, while the three sons and their wives are in Rome, paying homage and likely receiving orders, Herod Antipas, this Herod, the Tetrarch, and Philip's wife, Philip's that northern section, fall madly in love. And they have a hair and promptly agree to be together. Philip's wife divorces Philip and leaves for Antipas, thereby almost causing a civil war between that north section and that south section. And then Herodipus also divorces the princess of Nabatea and sends her home, which causes a border war along the south. So you got a civil war, you got border wars, you got a sex scandal, all because of this affair. And then there's John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus and comrade in the Jesus Kingdom of God movement. Outspoken prophet in the wilderness who condemns the actions of Herod and Herodias for their unlawful marriage and the subsequent warring that happens as a result of it. And uh, Herodias doesn't, or Herod doesn't want to kill John the Baptist because the people love him and he's trying to be a figurehead king even though he's a regional governor. Herodias does not share his concern and so we continue reading. We see there's a birthday party, Herod Antipas, Herod Tetrarch, birthday and his Previous niece, I guess now stepdaughter, does a dance for him. And that pleased him so much. And if you read between the lines, this is almost certainly suggests something sexually provocative. And Herod in his drunken super promises his niece, daughter, whatever she wants. And mom slash Herodias asks for the head of John the Baptist. And this is where the birthday party turns into murder under the kingship of this Herod. So what conflict are we being introduced to? Well, simply this, the kingdoms of this world are tangled in power, betrayal, sexual scandals, lust, divorce, land grabs, warring kingdoms, civil war, innocence dying, drunkenness, atrocious parenting, exploitation of children, pride saving face, and murder. The first line on the opening crawl would be, Jesus peace, episode 14. The kingdoms of this world are corrupt, taking whatever they want, whenever they want. And this is an indictment on all humanity and all kingdoms. Outside God and having the same power and resources as someone like Herod had and Herodias, we would fare not much better. By telling this backstory, Jesus, or Matthew, the Holy Spirit, is making a huge point as we enter this fourth book. If any of us were in power and without God, we would follow the same path. We would be a corrupted kingdom. And this sets the stage for where Jesus introduces the upside-down kingdom, where he describes in detail what we read in a later capstone statement in Matthew 20. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants must, you must be their servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And paradoxical themes arise, becoming wealthy by giving money away, choosing forgiveness instead of revenge, essentially giving your wife away, and you'll find it. And this takes us to the first act of Jesus after this horrific conflict introduced early on. Reading Matthew now 14, 12 to 23. Verse 12, remember, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat 
to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to ask him, rather came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them to me, to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. So after Jesus hears of John's death, he wants to get away to grieve. He's in pain. He's also aware that he's not, that he is now on Herod's radar, which would be unsettling to say the least. By the way, we find Herod Antipas again at Jesus' crucifixion day. See Luke 23. So Matthew writes, He withdrew, withdrew by boat to a solitary place, and hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus seeks to get away. The crowds who are affected by the corrupt kingdom in this world are also hurting and in need. And when I first wrote this, I wrote that Jesus puts his needs aside. But there's something mysterious going on here. Somehow in Jesus' grief, he's able to see also the grief of others. He creates what the Apostle Paul would later write as the fellowship of sufferings. Where through compassion, Jesus makes himself available for others. And we read a very familiar story. Uh, if you're with us at church on the 7th, you remember Pastor Deb actually performed a rendition of the story uh, in our gathering, the introduction of our gathering, based on um, the, the band Queen's We Will Rock You, and it was God Will, God Will Feed You. And uh, I'm not going to try to replicate what she does, uh, but maybe I'll try my own version in the gathering based on Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Long so less long, it's a story we've heard so much, this feeding of the 5,000. It demonstrates the power of Jesus. It's also a call back to the Exodus event where Jesus, the new and better Moses, provides manna for those in wilderness. But I also want to make clear today that this is a discipleship teaching practice practice moment. In fact, a lot of ministries will use this instance to model how Jesus gives um, responsibility away. He, he allows his disciples to step up and do some work. As even approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. We like to beat up on the disciples, but they actually see a real need here. Hungry people. There's people here that Jesus is ministering to. These are impoverished, oppressed people, and they're hungry now. So they're like, dude, these people need to get food or they're going to fall apart. And that's something very good that the disciples see. And when it comes to seeing, the question that we need to think through is, what's something in the world that we see that just isn't right? Just as they are able to see the plight of these people, how are we able to see the plight of people? 
those who need healing, freedom, correction, justice, mercy, the list goes on and unfortunately on. What is something in the world that just isn't right? Sure, we'd like to beat up the disciples, but they see a real need here. And not only do that, but they respond. They bring that need before Jesus. Hey, Jesus, there's hungry people who have no access to food. They need to get out of here and go home and get some food. It's a wonderful reality that they see this. We like to beat up on them. It's a beautiful thing. I think the fact that they've been with Jesus for so long and see how Jesus cares for the poor, they have a real care for others. But then Jesus, in his care, says something wildly unexpected. Jesus replied, verse 16, they need not to go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. You feed them. You do something about it. Do something about it. To which they respond and we may respond, me, what do I have to offer? When you see problems in the world, the Lord may just be saying, you give them something to eat. And our response is like, us? Us? Me? You ever see a need? See it again and sense that God might be inviting you to participate in his healing, justice, mercy, love, etc. But you feel like you have no capacity or expertise or potentially any even right to step in. Like, who am I to step in? The Lord is telling us that if we give what little we have, if we give that which we believe we need to survive for the sake of others, somehow there'll be more for each person, including us. They have two fish and five loaves, and it's not even them. John's gospel tells us it's a boy who brings it to them. And Jesus is saying, that's perfect. I can work with that. Because here's the principle. When you follow the king, when we follow King Jesus, we can give up, quote, what we think we have, quote, and somehow everyone will have more. The kingdom of God is filled with people who give up what they have so that everyone will have more. I say what we have because in the end, we really don't have much. God's the one who provides it. And we certainly aren't taking it with us. What I mean is, what do we have that isn't given by God? And if it's given by God, what do we have that shouldn't be shared? And when everyone will have more, I am making explicit that somehow in God's wild-like kingdom abundance, we will all have more. And I'm not trying to say that we'll have more from a prosperity perspective, that if we give 10 bucks, we'll somehow end up with 100. I'm saying we'll have more meaning, more life, more recognition and provision, more ability to live with less so that others can have more. And sometimes we can be blessed, but it's not contingent on blessing, especially if it looks like a worldly blessing of food, money. That's not worthy. Money, basically. Comfort, etc. Conversely, if we hold on to our gifts, our resources and treasures, it only make us miserable. If we're unable to give our finances away, our home away, our gifts away, we end up in a downward spiral of fruitless self-fulfillment and endless self-protection over that which is killing us. I speak that from previous experience. I speak that from current experience. I'm literally trying not to build my own kingdom right now as I build my own house. And I'm not building it. I'm relying on others. But goodness, 
It puts one in a scarcity mindset when the truth is what we have is designed for others. Jesus says, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, the disciples gave them to the people. Gave it to the disciples and then they gave it to the people. Taking the bread, giving thanks, break the loaves, give the disciples, give it to the people. Take, thanks, broke, give. The feeding the 5,000 has a wording there that's reminiscent of another aspect of the Gospels. And that would be that of the Last Supper that we see in Matthew's Gospel, first or chapter 26. While they're eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take this, eat, this is my body. The details are almost identical. Take the bread, give thanks, broke the loaves, give the disciples. Took, give thanks, broke, and give it to them. And this, this four-part process, it signifies a lot. It, it, it signifies the life of Jesus. In the mystery of the incarnation, God, the Son, was taken from his rightful place in heaven to be God Emmanuel, God with us, the man of sorrows, as Isaiah 53, verse 3 says. And as a child of God whom he loves and with him he's very well pleased, his life is marked by God's blessing, marked also by Jesus' gratitude, being with the Father, though he in many ways in the mystery was taken from him. Because he had compassion, he was broken by humanity's pain. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. And though he's innocent, he was broken on the cross. Two types of breaking. A voluntary brokenness and then the brokenness that comes with a broken world. He offers all of his life to all who would receive. He gives himself away. The Lord says, you give them something to eat. See, Jesus' journey is our journey. We're taken from judgment and sin when we follow Jesus. We're taken from our ultimate brokenness into a process of, albeit a long process of healing, but a renewal, a re regeneration. Broken people in a broken world into God's healing hands. Strangers in a strange land into God's family. We experience God's blessing. His grace upon grace. The words that he spoke over Jesus are spoken over us before we do anything. That we're his child whom the Lord loves and with us he's well pleased. And of course we still experience brokenness as sojourners in this world. And the brokenness can be multifaceted. It's suffering, loss, and ongoing infection of loneliness that by God's grace leads us to solitude and freely in the community. But it's also like Jesus can be and should be a voluntary brokenness, an insertion into the fellowship of sufferings to which we belong until Christ comes again. You see, there's a spiritual gift that we really rarely ever talk about in the church, and it's one called voluntary poverty. There are a lot of definitions, several, but... Voluntary poverty is essentially the renouncement of material comfort and luxury in order to adopt a more meager lifestyle in order to serve God more effectively. Voluntary poverty is a form of volunteer brokenness because we feel the pain this world carries. Because in compassion we shoulder one another's burdens, we decide to decrease consumption in order to increase connection with God and others. We are taken 
blessed. We are broke. We break. And we're given to others. We're designed to be given away, sent with God to be the daily bread this world needs, to help the orphan and widow in distress, to welcome any stranger who may need food for the body or the soul. So with that, as we close this conversation, we reflect about the idea that the kingdoms of this world takes whatever they want, whenever they want. And those who follow Jesus give up, quote, what they think they have or what they have so that everyone can have more. What is something that you can offer up to Jesus? What is something that you can offer up to Jesus so that everyone can have more? Is your home so those who need a place to sleep can lay their head? Is it your Sunday morning, your Friday morning? Is it your vocational skills, your aptitude in geometry, your screwdriver, your stethoscope, a paintbrush, drafting abilities, ability to copyright, your love of spreadsheets, your ability to correct posture, or maybe your ability to grill the perfect chicken breast? How can these and more be offered to help to tutor to build up, to heal, to sustain others. What can you offer to Jesus so that everyone can have more? Maybe it's your desire to be in this perfect relationship that's taking you away from others. Maybe it's your own life that you're self-protecting, refusing to give it over to God who loves you and cares for you more than anyone else ever will. Matthew 19, 14 verse 19 says, Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples, and disciples gave them to the people. It's God's compassion for you and for others that moves him to call us and to move us to give up our lives and give them over to others so that we can really find true life. So as a church, we are going to take communion together, pray and sing a song. And I would encourage you, if you're home right now, to read Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. Read those words and partake of the cup and the bread. Recognize that God gave everything for us so that we could be fueled and be the fuel for others. Thank you, Jesus.